Hello and welcome to the Last Looks podcast, a show where we catch up with talented hairstylists and makeup artists in the film and television industry. We'll pick their super creative brains and find out all the good stuff. Join me, your host, Jamie Lee, in finding out what's what in the hair and makeup departments around the world. And now, a word from our sponsor. Welcome back to the podcast, Sammy. Thanks, Jamie Lee. I'm so happy to be back. Now, last week we were chatting about some of the Hask must-haves for a stylist set bag. What other goodies are we chatting about today? So the other must-have products for our hair stylist, dot, 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 they're the one and only Hask Shine Oils, which offer three lightweight, alcohol-free options to choose from. Oh, for sure. You've got to keep that hair looking alive on screen. Yes, couldn't agree more. First up is our Argan Repairing Hair Oil, which strengthens and restores. If frizzy, damaged hair is you frazzled, then look no further. Hass Argan Oil from Morocco Repairing Shine Oil will 100% come to the rescue. It instantly provides frizz-free shine without leaving any oily residue. Thank God, right? I mean, who wants oily hair? (laughs) Argan oil is rich in essential fatty acids and penetrates hair to restore shine and provides soft, silky results in dry and damaged hair. So next we have Keratin Protein Smoothing Hair Oil, which smooths, softens, and reduces frizz. We like to say that this product gives damaged, over-processed hair the boot with a miracle makeover. So it's infused with hydrolyzed keratin to smooth and reduce frizz, leaving you a soft, smooth, and incredibly shiny locks. Last but not least is our Minoy Coconut Oil nourishing hair oil, which moisturizes and revitalizes. And this is made with pure coconut oil. Yeah. So Minoy oil is native to Tahiti and known for its rehydrating and softening qualities, also for leaving your hair nourished, moisturized, and revived. And this one's great for any hair type. All these oils can be used on wet or dry hair for best results. I love how many options I have when using Hask, and now I know more about what they all do. It's great. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the many awesome things about the brand. Not only are there so many choices, but you don't have to be married to just one. Thanks again to you and Hask for joining us on the Last Looks podcast, Sammy. We love having you. Jamie Lee, it was such a pleasure being here. And let me leave you and your listeners in the trade industry with this. The Haas brand welcomes the opportunity to continue building our relationship with television and film styling community. If we can support a project you're working on, feel free to send us an email at hask at stonemanagement.net and we'd be more than happy to help. Amazing, Sammy. Thank you. No, thank you. I could be here all day. And now, our feature presentation. Today on the Last Looks podcast, I'm speaking with makeup designer Michelle Burke. Michelle has designed some of the most iconic characters in film, from Quest for Fire to Bram Stoker's Dracula to multiple characters for Tom Cruise, including Lestat from Interview with the Vampire. Michelle talks about coming up in the business in Canada, how her career has taken her to wonderful locations around the world, and the incredible challenges and pressures our line of work can create. Pictures up. Last looks. Rolling. And action. Welcome to the Last Looks podcast, Michelle. Well, thank you very much, Jamie. I'm really 
very happy and I'm, I'm delighted to be speaking to you. And actually, it's an honor. I mean, just to be on there with the illustrious group of people that I've seen you interview. So I thank you. And uh, it's great to be here. It's amazing. Thank you so much. Hey, now, I would like you to finish this sentence for me, okay? Okay. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a girl named Michelle. And when she grew up, she wanted to be a jockey, believe it or not. <laughs> you did? I think I that's did. one I of the best be... answers I've had so far. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I grew up in a in a horse racehorse area, Kildare in Ireland, and everyone around me, including my father, were all involved in the racing horse racing business. So I began riding at a young age and became obsessed with racehorses and jockeys and everything. And I wanted to be a jockey. It didn't occur to me. You couldn't. At that time, there were no girl jockeys. Of course, now there are. In fact, a very famous Irish girl is a jockey. But um, at the time, no. But um, that's what I wanted to be. So crazy, crazy. But anyway. and were, you, were, you, were you going to be small enough to be a jockey? Because I, I, I mean, you have to be quite to lightweight, me. don't you? Yeah, I I am lightweight, but I I don't know. It didn't occur to me. But I mean, it got it got solved rather rapidly because when I think I was about 11, my father and the trainer decided they'd put me up in a two year old racehorse in the middle of a curve, Mm. which is a vast expanse of space. And of course, I rode English at the time. And the minute my legs hit the sides of the horse, because jockey, jockeys ride on their knees pretty much. And even though my stirrups were high, I squeezed his mm. sides to, because yeah. that was the way you grip us in English. And, of course, the horse started to run. And, of course, he ran oh away with me. And it was the most terrifying experience. And I couldn't stop him. And it was he was heading into the next town. He was literally heading for the next town. And the only thing I could do was head for a gorse bush, oh. which I did. I was steered him with both, all my might into a gorse bush. Yeah. He stopped suddenly and I fell into the bush. Ow. And after that, I said, that's it. I'll never get up on the two-year-old again and of course then they had to race after the horse and jeeps and everything and it was a calamity oh my god my mother was not pleased when we got home <clears throat> anyway so yeah, she's was, like, what were you thinking <laughs> I, exactly how old were you when that I happened was, i was 11 oh my goodness yeah, yeah. Woo. crazy yeah so then i thought okay i'd like to be a nor I, I wanted to be an artist you know because i was good at art and then my father said well you know keep that as the hobby it won't make you any money yeah you know? so anyway it went from stuff like that's the, kind of the way it started yeah, you know, that's the way it started it's <laughs> <laughs> awesome so going through high school and stuff what what kind of path were you on at that point as to what you wanted to do um, when you when you finished school well the path it, you know truly uh, you know high school well, we, I, for, for me, it was, we, we didn't have the name high school. It was just regular school. But I went mm. to different boarding schools. And the one I went to called Mount Anvil in Dublin, I was a boarder there. I was not really thriving. And I now look back and realize my problem was I, I have dyslexia. Mm. And no one at the time knew what that was. Mm. And I just wasn't doing well, really. I just was floundering. And the only thing I was good at was art and sports and things. And the head nun decided the best thing to do is to send her off to this other Sacred Heart boarding school in in France, learn a language, and maybe she'll do a secretarial course and get some type of a job then. So the solution was pack her off there, let her learn French, and see if she can survive type of thing. Mm-hmm. So I was flung headlong into this godforsaken place in Alsace and 
had to learn French. Well, obviously I had to learn French because no one spoke English. And the end result was I realized that I could speak fluent French. And I thought, well, you can't be a terrible dud if you can speak a fluent language. You know, if you can speak a language, you can't be that bad. So then I came back, when I came back to Ireland, I went to another Sacred Heart school, Monkstown, near Dublin. And there I did my finishing exams to like entry university type exams, the last year of school type of exams. I did very well in them. And so, of course, languages was, again, suddenly my big strong point and art were seemed to be the thing. So then I thought, well, why don't I learn another language and maybe be an interpreter or something like be a UN interpreter, yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. So then I thought, OK, I'll be an interpreter. So I went off to Spain, to Madrid, and I went, you know, I used to teach these little rich brats English after their school and things to learn money. And I went to the university and took fine art courses and studied Spanish, basically. And the goal was to learn French and Spanish and not have English and be an interpreter. But when I went to a school that taught interpreting, I realized that this was not, I could not do this. You know, where you're hearing one language in and you're meant to be spouting the other out. My brain just wasn't working. It just, it didn't like doing that. So, but at the time, again, it was early 70s and Ireland was in a bit of a mess financially and economically and in every way. And of course, my family was because my father had been a drinker and caused major problems. And I'm one of 10 10 children in the family. And my poor mother opened up an antique shop to make ends mm-hmm. meet. But the big deal was she said, look, you can't, you can't stay at home. You and your older brother have to get out and seek your fame and fortune, whatever it is, just do something like emigrate. And so yeah. Mark, my older brother and I decided, okay, well, we'll emigrate. We'll, we'll emigrate to Australia or to Canada and whichever country takes us first we'll go there. So we did all the paperwork. And the one that came in first to accept us was Canada. So off we went, both of us, to Montreal. And of course, I never looked back because Montreal was a great place for me. It was French. And Mm -hmm. of course, I didn't, I mean, the only way I used, I I got jobs in, you know, being like cocktail waitresses at a place called the Rainbow Bar and Grill and places like that. But Mm -hmm. they were very popular places. And the time, all the tax breaks low-budget films were beginning. You know, Montreal, uh, Quebec was beginning to give tax breaks for film companies to come in. It was a very new thing. And a lot of film companies were coming in to do low-budget films. So I I was sort of modeling, helping a friend of mine and doing stuff like that. And one day she said, well, you know, uh, let's put on a, a fashion show. So we were <laughs> we were putting on a fashion show. Uh, her family were in the fur business. And of course, mm-hmm. she had access to a lot of stuff and was very savvy. And she said, you know, Michelle, we better hire a makeup artist. And of course, I had never heard of a makeup artist. I, you know, I didn't know about this. And in comes yeah. this makeup artist, uh, Jacques-Louis Pelletier, and he shows his portfolio. And as he's flicking through the pages, it was like someone hit me with a light bulb. And I was like, how did I not know about this? You know, uh, you know, he's showing these before and afters. And, and, and I was always blown away by these cover girl faces. I never knew how they achieved the looks. They, these were like these unearthly creatures. And yet the models that were there were just ordinary girls like us. And but mm-hmm. when the makeup was done, they look, were looking like incredible. And so the next day I couldn't wait. I called him up and I said, look, Jacques, how can I learn how to do this? Just as a hobby, you know, just as a hobby, just to be able to do it just for fun. And he told me about this Mm. Canada manpower place where I could go and for six weeks do, you know, learn how to do makeup. I borrowed money 
for my first $200 ever, got a credit card and took the Mm. course. And I was just besotted. It was like I had fallen in love with something. It was beyond what I felt. And I never knew that you could make money doing this. I thought this was just a fun thing to do. But I did finally, I heard somebody, then somebody then told me that I could get a job as a demonstrator in the department stores. So I got a job as a demonstrator in Ogilvy's, which was a a great department store in Montreal, to Mm -hmm. do makeovers for Revlon. And suddenly they liked me. And I was doing all these makeovers, changing women from, you know, these the 60s look into the no makeup look, you know, that kind of look, the natural look. And they were calling me their international makeup artist. And it was really hilarious. <laughs> and I was up there on this podium. But the, the big thing about the whole makeover thing and being a demonstrator was that I learned a lot. I just did face after face all day for weeks and months. And it really... I really learned my chops. I mean, it was just amazing. All these women coming in looking one way and I would take it all off and make them look another way. And it was just, I mean, I hadn't really a clue, but I was really learning everything I could as best I could at the time on the job. And then I got a job with a couple, Electo and Corrado, who were a couple who had this amazing makeover boutique in Montreal. And they, their makeup line actually was the precursor to Mac. I mean, Mac pretty much copied what they did with their no-name brand. And I worked for Mm. them doing uh, makeovers and we did all the fashion shows and fashion spreads. And through them, I began to be a fashion makeup artist and went out on my own and, you know, did covers and all sorts of stuff and fashion shoots and really was, I felt quite, I mean, I was considered one of the go-to people at the time. And then I thought, oh my goodness, I had bought this book by Richard Corson and Mm. As I again flicked through the pages, I went, oh, my goodness, I don't know how to do this stuff. I'm not a truly a, a real makeup artist. I don't know how to do the character work, the fake noses, all the things he's talking about, the slit yeah. throats. I feel like I just I, I feel like that book has a lot to answer for. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you that book. I, I still everyone I who stumbled upon it. It's oh, life changing for this them. day. I mean, it's the Bible. I mean, I have all his books his hair books, everything. Mm -hmm. And to this day, if you go to them, you know, sure, there were different, he used grease paint or whatever, or different products. It doesn't matter the technique. What he says in there is right on the money. And so I found Mm. then this lady called Mickey Hamilton, who was the only one old-timer makeup artist who did all the, you know, agings and anything specialty. She did it, character work, agings. And I went to her just and showed her my portfolio and said, please take me on. She did film. And she did. She said, I'll take you on. You're going to work like crazy. No money. Mm. And I did. I worked with her. And really, I, she worked me hard. And I worked with her for, <laughs> with no money, nothing, for at least three, four movies and got my chops. But the best thing about working with her was not only did she give me an entry, she opened the door to film for me. But, she, I, you know, I learned continuity. I learned how to behave on a set. Uh, I learned so mm. much. I mean, just by doing and it was just learning on the job and it was so excited i didn't care whether i slept or didn't sleep or eat or didn't eat didn't matter i was just passionate it was terribly exciting i never cared about the money nothing and so that's that's how it happened you know and for me it was just this big passionate love affair and i didn't know where it was going but all i knew is that i whatever job was next i wanted to do that job that was next so it was yeah it was really great it was just wonderful that's 
Awesome. So, uh, I mean, how do you work on something full time and not be getting paid for it? You obviously been saving your pennies when you had yes. been working to be able to afford to do so. Yes, I well because when you come from you know when when I grew up my family were doing very well financially and then all of a sudden due to my father's errant gambling ways and uh, drinking and stuff uh, the same story a lot of people may know about um, he he basically just gambled the family money away and right. so I was I have this from his lessons <laughs> yeah terrifying feeling of not having enough and so mm. with the result. Um, I was always saving money and uh, never believed in borrowing or anything. I mean, you know, I always made sure I had enough and I did have enough to tide me over basically. And, you know, the goal was really that at the end of the stint, I was going to go and whatever producers and or film that I heard of were coming into town, I was just going to go in to their production office or call the production manager and show them my portfolio mm. and tell them I wanted the job. And that's exactly what I did. And I mean, right from, there, I began to get jobs heading up the whole show, which you'd, you'd never hear of happening now. But back then, that's the way it was, because they just didn't have the, enough people. And, you know, there were low budget films, mostly slashers. So I don't really think they, you know, they mattered. I mean, I remember one day when I was being called to do, they were interviewing me to do Terror Train. And I remember Roger mm. Spottiswood, who's the director, you know, and John Alcott, believe it or not, famous John Alcott that was the DP, can you imagine? And so from Barry <laughs> Lyndon. And uh, he's, I remember we were sitting on the floor of the corridor, I don't know why, and uh, he said to me, Michelle, do, do you think you can really do this film? You know, and it occurred to me, my God, are they doubting me type of thing? And then I thought, gosh, I have never headed up a show. And then I said, oh, yes, absolutely, I can do it. And there I was <laughs> heading up this whole film, you know, and mm -hmm. learning as I went. I mean, I remember using jam to make the blood coagulate and things like that, you know, whatever it took, you know, going to dental stores to get plaster or, you know, down to this where you get cement at the, the quarry, you know, to make molds. It was all just on the spot. And I met up with Stefan Dupuis around that time and he was in the same boat. He, he was actually very good with sculpting and things. He, he really needed his chops in the makeup arena. So we made a great team right. and we, we had our own studio, which was great in old Montreal. And we really learned a lot, uh, you know, because we learned on the job, both of us uh, learning how to make molds. And then he somehow, he contacted Dick Smith somehow. And Dick, when he actually came up, used to use our studio as a base, I remember for scanners when he came up and through him, we met, you know, John Caglione and uh, Fullerton and all these people and Kevin Haney. And, it, you know, we learned from them telling us how they did stuff. And so with the result, little by little, we gained our chops, you know, making blood in a big dustbin with a broom to stir and mm. the blood and the photo yeah. flow. And little by little, we really learned a lot. And so we were the go-to, you know, special effects people. And of course, when it came to blood and gore, we were I was the queen of blood and gore. There was no doubt about that one. <laughs> and so, you know, that's how it happened. We were just having a great time. But well, we, were, we weren't thinking about our career. We weren't thinking about anything, really. It was just we were having a great time, you know. Yeah. So, it's so so awesome to have that partner in crime to learn with and yeah. to troubleshoot with oh, and work it all out. Oh, I know. And yeah, just to have somebody there to do that with. I know. And we were crazy. I mean, we were crazy. We weren't. We took it seriously, but tongue in cheek, you know, if things weren't working out, we got a big deal, you know, 
try this way. You know, there was, you know, although there was always the deadline panic, that was a deadline panic. There were all nighters yeah. and horrible things like that, getting up at four in the morning to run foam and oh, terrible things. Is it gelling? You know, I put it. And then you'd be <laughs> calling, we'd be calling Charlie Schramm who make the foam and no, this batch you use so much gel. If it's humid like this, don't do that. And oh, it was agonizing, you know, it didn't spring back when you touch it and oh, awful stuff. It was <laughs> the stress. I can't believe it. That foam caused us. <laughs> I love that you um, had a community of people that you could reach out to though. That's awesome. Well, sort of that. reach out. It wasn't like you could just pick the phone up. We wouldn't dare. You know what I mean? That yeah. was like calling the inner sanctum. Uh, it was mostly right. just Stefan and I, but, you know, it mm. was still a freak out sometimes, you know. But um, Oh, it still is, isn't it? <laughs> I, yeah. Well, you know, There's always yeah. something that happens There's that you're always, like, what? I know. There, there really is. You know, there really is. You're, you're in the middle of something and suddenly your stomach drops and you go, oh, my God, this didn't happen or <laughs> this is not working. You know, and you've got to yeah. right away in your mind go, and the actors there sitting, you know, immobile, expecting you to continue doing this amazing job. And you're going, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, and you've got to correct it <laughs> then and there, you know. But I think we all yeah. have those moments, you know, and somehow we learn. I mean, I guess it's just improvisation. We just learn, you know, there is no little manual you can go to. What if this happens, you do this. It's not mm-hmm. ever like that because each makeup is so different, you know. But yeah. um, that's the excitement of the job also, is that each job is different and every makeup is different, you know, and every yeah. actor's skin and face and how they react. And there's so many factors, you know, that we have to combine in our world, as you know. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I find it so interesting uh, recently. <laughs> just We hadn't even started the project and we were having a Zoom meeting, the makeup artist, myself and uh, director, production kind of get to the end of the meeting and they're like so how long is this gonna take each morning and it's just like guys we haven't even done it yet I know. like yes we haven't what it, this isn't I know <laughs> it's not exactly the same every time on everything it's that never, you do it's just no. like um can we just do the test first and then we may have a little bit of a better idea as to like times and things but oh, no. it's just like blows my mind but the- you know, whenever because <laughs> I did a lot of films over the years with Tom Cruise and I would head up the head the department as well as do him and design the looks and do the leading lady and the whole bit but always Tom would nail you before you even began now this must only take X amount of time. So no matter what or yeah. how complicated the makeup was, whether it was Les Grossman or whether it was Vanilla Sky or some disguise for Mission Impossible, it doesn't matter what it was, mm. I had to he, he could not be longer than an hour. And if he got more than an hour in the chair, you could see him just grip the seat with his fist like this is excruciating. I can't take another minute, you know, and, and then he's about, and we, and we look at each other, he's about to buck, he's about to get out of here, you know, so sometimes you just have to design a makeup, no matter what it is, bring in a SWAT team, have your pieces pre-painted, pre-hair punched, whatever mm-hmm. it takes, but design it so that they are not long in the chair because they can't stand it. They just won't tolerate it. And you're going to have someone who's yeah. uh, not going to put up with you and, so it's six and one, but then you can't compromise your art. So it's very complicated. Sometimes you have to warn up front, look, this is a complicated makeup. And yes, the face yeah. will only take X and the hair, but there's still the fat suit or the hands or the 
other things that go on that's going to take time, you know. So you've got to kind of psychologically get them ready for what's going to happen. You know, whereas some yeah. actors take pride in the fact that they spend hours in the makeup chair. I don't know why, but <laughs> I did. You know. Well, you know, <laughs> who knows? But yeah. it's good that he, yeah, that you know that with him straight off the bat. Like yes. he's You've laid that, actor, yeah. put that line in the sand. Yes. Yeah. And then you're back into it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, uh, what's that Jamie, that cook who says the five minute, or what is it, 30 minute meals, you know, are you going to spend oh, three Oliver? hours making the dinner? Yeah, Jamie Oliver. Yeah. You know, he has a cookbook. I think it's a 30-minute dinner or something. And I have that cookbook right. and I love it because basically it's going to take you 30 minutes to get dinner together. But it's a great dinner. It's, whole, it's got dessert and everything. But you've got to plan yeah. it. And it's the same thing for the makeup. You know, you, you know, are you going to plan this cordon bleu thing where you do 50,000 stages and it takes three hours stirring the pot? Or are you going to put this together where it's just like this really lean – California cuisine, Zen, but incredibly nourishing, wonderful thing. And, you know, that's the kind of looks I would go for. And and also I would go for minimalist and work up. I mean, I would not think of trying to put kit and caboodle on someone to create a look. I would go from bare bones. What have they got to start with? And then how do I build on mm. that to create what I need? But if there's something that's getting taken away, it'll be taken away because that's one less thing, you know, and yeah. time is money so if it's not necessary yeah exactly yeah exactly <laughs> it's not bringing anything to the table <laughs> i know <laughs> yes exactly so that that sounds amazing that you i mean it sounds like at the beginning working under what was her name sorry um mickey the woman that you worked for which one the yeah mickey, Work, yes mickey hamilton working under under her just getting that foundation of how it all works on set must oh, have yes. just been priceless it really I mean, was yeah everybody and, gets that and she you know she would sometimes sit back and, and make me do the work you know after lunch touch-ups everybody i did everybody you know it was one of those things she pushed me you know but mm-hmm. i i took it and i loved it it was not kind of oh my god she's making me work she, she did make me work hard but i loved it i didn't care you know. Well, the thing with that as well is that she's obviously trusting you to do afterlook touch-ups. Like if she thought that you were terrible at your job, then she wouldn't so. be letting you touch anybody. Know. Do you know what I mean? I so well, I was amazed with yeah. But the actress didn't seem to mind, you know? You know what I mean? Usually yeah. you, you don't just put your assistant onto your lead actor, you know? But <laughs> they just sat down and she just said, Michelle's going to do you. And that was it, you know? Oh, that's awesome. I know. That's strange. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so was Terra Train the first thing that you department headed or? Um, let me see. Gosh, it probably was the first uh, kind of big one. There were other little ones. Yeah. But the mm-hmm. first one where I was like, wow, I'm on a, I'm on a real film, you know? Yeah, I think yeah. it was. It's, it's so amazing looking through your IMDb because, I mean, it's such an impressive collection of projects that you've worked on. It's amazing. Let's talk about some of them. A lot of them were films I sort of heard about. And, I, you know, it's like, you know, I love to read or it's like when you hear about something and they say, oh, well, this and this and this look is going to be in the film. They want this character to look like this. And then they go, that's the film I want. So then I'd go after right. it. You know, it's like if you like certain novels, like I love a detective spy novels or that type mm-hmm. of thing, thrillers. And so if I hear of a good one, I'll want to know the name or 
even if it's a food thing, I love food, and someone tells me of a great recipe or something to bake, I'll want to know the recipe, you know. And it's a bit like that. If, if I heard about a film coming in and it sounded like I'd have a great swing at the makeups, like that the makeups would be really great and exciting on a creative level for me, I wanted that film, you know. So yeah. the crazier, the bigger the monster, the whatever it was, I wanted it, you know. But the film that came to me that was, I didn't go after that I didn't even know existed was uh, Quest for Fire, which was weird because, you know, that had a huge amount of stunning makeups. And I was just called out of the blue to do that, you know. So it's strange how when something just drops in your lap. I mean, that one won me, won me our first Oscar, you know. I mean, I wasn't even expecting Yeah, that's amazing. Because, that, I mean, how long had you been working oh, in the industry? Oh, only a few years. You know, I mean, even wow. when I won, people were going, who the bleep is Michelle Burke? You know, and even I was saying that, who the bleep, who the bleep am I? You know, it was, you know, what an incredible like experience, an though. You know, it was, oh, it was, but it was way over my head. I mean, it was like being put on the racehorse at 11. It was like, <laughs> what have I yeah. done? You know, there were days where I was like standing there in the jungles sweating bricks going oh my goodness i hope the makeup stays on you know because where did you shoot that we shot in africa and in Mm -hmm. in kenya which was truly exciting and then we shot in scotland and then we went to canada and shot in northern ontario you know because we're four four different tribes you know yeah and i did the first part with sarah manzani and then she was not on the show then we did the rest in uh, Canada, but it was so exciting. It was exhilarating and highly stressful because it was the first time ever I had to train people to make up Neanderthals and really streamline makeups because I remember the first day I did makeup tests with new people that had never done these makeups. And even though, even though I had a little mini demo day where I showed them how everything was to be done and gave them the makeup, the, when everybody mm. finished their makeup, there was a pink Neanderthal there was a pale Neanderthal, there was a yellow one, there was a dark brown one, there was a black one. And suddenly I went, oh my God, I'll have to streamline all these looks. So then I realized I've got to create a palette, a list of instructions, one, two, three, four, and this is exactly how you do it. You can't allow anyone poetic or creative license on what to do. And sure enough, then we began to get them all right because each tried their skin tone had to be the right color. You couldn't deviate, you know, you can't have... The mud people, one looking blue, one looking chalk white, one looking whatever. And the same for the other Neanderthals. You couldn't, they all, all their skin tones had to be the same, basically, and the hair and everything. So it was a huge learning curve. And also how to run a huge department like that with many, many makeup artists and all coming in who cleans up. And, you know, we had a cleanup squad because we the other ones had to begin at 4 a.m. to start the makeups. And some left and some didn't. And the logistics in the end... Even the producers couldn't, uh, became so confused and it became so complex. They gave me somebody to work with to help me uh, figure out the call sheet and to, not an AD, because the ADs couldn't even handle it, but just how to streamline them in and out of makeup and stuff, because it was just impossible. It was incredible. And then you were changing locations on top of that. Oh, yeah, we were moving around all the time. Going and shooting in different countries. Oh, absolutely. I know. Wow. It was crazy. It was crazy. And for it to be in your first few years of um, 
thing in the industry. Oh, wow. Absolutely. That's, I mean, I remember we, we brought impressive. over, we brought over glue, the famous uh, spirit gum from Foxes of London. And this was precious spirit gum. And the trailer had to move from, I don't know, one place in Ontario to another. And everything was locked mm. down in the trailer. But when we came in, of course, with all the bumping around on the country roads, one of these gallons of fox spirit gum got loose and spilled all over uh, the floor. And oh my goodness, oh the my cleanup. God. It was horrific. That and Fuller's Earth, the whole lot. It was, you've no idea, the memories of some of these things that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to only, start cleaning that up. <laughs> only back then, you know. And then I remember the costume, the costume department. You know, we, everyone's young, everyone's rookies. They decided for this cannibal tribe that we had, we had these hair, Ike had created these like spandex suits, flesh tone, and we airbrushed mm-hmm. in all the muscle tones. And I had all these Korean women in Mo- Montreal hand tie the hair into them so that they looked like Neanderthals. And that way they could just put on the suit and we wouldn't have to make up the bodies or do anything. And the, then mm-hmm. once they went to wardrobe, the wardrobe decided, well, all the hair looks beautifully new, pristine, you know, just like a new wig. They said, we better break it down. And of course, we never should have left them. And they went out and got cow dung and they mixed it with earth and all sorts of stuff. And when you went in to smell the department with these suits, oh, the smell oh of, <laughs> of cow shit. It was, I mean, you've no idea that film, the things that were done, you know, but it was, it was no one. At no point somebody thinks maybe we should make up something that is like cow shit, but not actually use cow shit. <laughs> yeah, not the real thing. But, you know, back then we, yeah. we did stuff, awful stuff like that because who knew? Who knew better? You know, mm. and of course it was like rookies, you know, the whole lot. And, uh, but it, it was fun too. I mean, it, it, that's what made it fun, I think, you know. But uh, no one would go near those guys who played that, those characters. It was hilarious. You could smell them coming, the you know. Buggers. <laughs> they would have gone home at the end of the day and showered for like an hour trying yeah, to I know. just they get the called, smell out of their nostrils. They were called wag- <laughs> wagaboos, they were called. Oh, my goodness. Oh, oh my goodness gracious. And so you've won two Oscars, is that correct? I know. It's hard for me to believe even. It's amazing. So your second one was for Dracula? Bram Stoker's Dracula. But, you know, yeah. I mean, when when you win them, it's kind of weird one person winning for something because you have a whole team who, you know, you're only as good as the team and you have the whole team who boys you up and who makes this happen. I mean, you tell them you want this and you show them this and everything. And of course it comes from your head from what you want. But if you didn't have a good team, you couldn't do it. You mm. know, so no. it's complex, isn't it, when you win these things, you know? But um, <laughs> Yeah, it is tricky. I think everybody in the industry understands the situation. <laughs> yes. I guess yes. I w- yes. I hope so, yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. So Tell me about working with Francis Ford Coppola on that. It was, I mean, the cast as well, incredible. Oh, the cast was great. Anthony Hopkins and Gary Oldman and Winona and Sadie Frost. It was, yeah. yeah, it was, you know, and everybody again was young, you know, they all, they hadn't come into their own. I mean, look at them all today where they are now, you know, they were just mm. kind of up and coming, but you could tell they had talent. They were all oozing with talent and, you know, yeah. plenty of egos on the set and everything. Um, Francis, 
was aloof, but pretty amazing. Most of his direction to me came through Eko Ishioka, the costume designer, because he put her in charge of the look, the visuals of everything from the sets Mm. to the costumes, makeup and hair and uh, the overall design. So I primarily worked with her and then everything went to Frances. And from the two of them, they wanted one person succinctly to get the vision of the hair and the makeup. That one, there would be only one person with that vision. And then they gave that chore to me, which became tricky, although I wasn't aware of it at the time, politically, because, you know, the hairdressers felt I shouldn't have designed the hair, that that should have been their job. But Francis and Aiko were very clear about the fact that they wanted the makeup designer to do it. And that was me. They had designated me to do it. And I had just, I had not yeah. been long in from Canada and I was used to doing the entire lot if I designed um, a, a show. Mm. And so I just yeah. operated from that premise. But it wasn't, it was very complicated on a political level, actually, you know, but in in the end, I did do, do it. And, you know, I did the old age Dracula hair that you see, the swirly one that everyone likes. And uh, Greg mm-hmm. Hannum did the old age face and Greg Canham did the bat and the wolf creatures. But everything else was awesome. my domain. And so mm-hmm. Aiko and I would work very, very closely. And, you know, she would show me different pieces of fabric and costume designs and ideas. And then I would go off and, and make sketches, basically, and come back to her and say, is this what you have in mind? And she was going, yes, but I want more red on the eyes. She was going to say lead for red uh, on the eyes, or she mm-hmm. wanted this, or she paler, paler, you know. And so, and then the other thing was that uh, they were very clear, Francis was very clear that he wanted a very different Dracula. He wanted a Dracula that had never been seen before. So that was a kind Mm. of a very, uh, wow. He said, I don't want the cloak, the widow's peak, the fangs, the, you you know, the pale face. I don't want that look. I want a very different Dracula. I want one that can look like he's, you know, partly human, but etheric, someone that is timeless, that lives between the East and the West. You know, that's why I came up with that hairdo, because he is kind of Eastern inspired, especially with that big red cape, and then the West coming over this way. And so I created that look, um, you know, where he, he was timeless. He traveled through the times, the Victorian times and the present times. And also in Dracula, because of the budget and because of the way Francis wanted to shoot it, it was all done on stage, which a lot of people don't know. He wanted it to be like wow. a stage play. And he wanted mm-hmm. the actors to be the sets and everything else to kind of fade back, you know, because at one point he had Dante Ferretti designing the, Dante Ferretti, I think, yes, designing the sets. And then in the end, he said, no, I just want Echo to do it because I, it's not important. This is not important. It's the actors we want to see, and they're more important than anybody. So it was that type of film and really artistically ex- terribly exciting and um, mm. ex- very creative and, and uh, exhilarating and terribly stressful. You know, it was a stressful <laughs> shoot, but on a creative level, terribly exciting, you know. Yeah, and just being able to work so closely with, with them to, like, create what it is that yes. they are visualizing, which is very cool. I know. I love that oh, back and forth kind of, do you like this, a little bit of that, no, a little bit of this, okay, and you're just building something together, and it's so much yeah. fun. Yeah, 
I know. I mean, I remember the first day we shot that we, we called it the Kabuki hairdo, but it wasn't really that white hairdo where the Francis or where Gary was in the old age makeup and he comes across with the fingers first, the sh- like a shadow puppet across the set. Mm. And it, just, the music is playing, you know, do doom, do doom. And you first, you just see the head and the hands come across the set. It's a kind of a very famous, iconic shot in Dracula. Mm. And we were all on the set. It was the first time we shot it and we did one take. And then there was a, we stopped and Francis was looking at it. And he used to often look at things in his silverfish, which we called the silverfish, was this trailer apart from the set. He wasn't even on the set. And you just hear him. Right saying stuff over a mic to the crew. And I was standing on the mm. set with Aiko and we were all standing there in silence going, oh my goodness, I hope he likes this. Because it was the first time anyone mm. had ever seen it. And I was hearing kind of snickers from some of the crew saying, oh my goodness, he looks like Mickey Mouse. And of course that put the fear of God in me because you never of want <laughs> a character you create to look like some iconic figure because you could have the, the yeah. studio come out. I mean, you know, Disney could come after you saying, you know, he's mm. too like Mickey Mouse. We will sue you. And it happens. Mm. You know, you don't want anyone to look close to Batman. You can't have the wings. There's all this stuff. So yeah. I turned to Aiko and I said, and I could hear the Snickers. He looks like Mickey Mouse. And my heart dropped. And I thought, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And I said to Aiko, do you think Francis likes it? And she looked at me and she said, he loves it. You know, so I thought, okay, I don't care what they say. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. You know, but you have these moments where you come away from dailies or something and there's yeah. a ton of silence and you go, oh my goodness, I wonder, do they like it? Is that it? Have I lost the job, you know? I mean, mm. I remember on uh, Vanilla Sky, Cameron Crowe came to me and he said, you know, if Tom Cruise if the studio and all the big wigs, if they don't like the look you're going to create for Tom Cruise, which was meant to be a cross between, like from a car crash, that he's totally disfigured but and looking grotesque. But if you make mm. this iconic face that everyone loves, if you make it too grotesque but not grotesque enough, mm. I, he said, we absolutely are not. We're going to pull the plug and not do the film. Wow. And I remember the dailies for the, from that. I was freaking out. You know, I, I don't. Pressure, jeez. I, I had a dry mouth, and I didn't, and I didn't eat for like nearly two days because I thought if this doesn't go down well, they're pulling the. They are seriously pulling the plug. They are not going to have Tom Cruise look like a monster. You know. Oh and my gosh! I know. So that's the kind of stuff. <laughs> there is a little bit of stress at times, but on another level, it's it's a, a dread. Maybe I sh- my it's not good, but the adrenaline's incredible. <laughs> You know? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, oh no, my Dracula gosh, that's works. such a that's such a weight to put on somebody's shoulders. They don't even think twice of it. You know, they don't. Yeah, because they're, they're thinking of their stuff. You know, it's just the way it is. I mean, you do see people getting fired, and we all know after dailies if they don't like the look or something, it happens. You know. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, I, I say this often and I say it often on here, but I, I pretty much just go to work every day just waiting to get fired. <laughs> oh, stop. Oh, that's too negative. Like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> Not that's, really. No, oh, I'm kidding. Do but I, my joke is always, you know, if a producer walks over to me and says, Jamie, I'm like, what am I? What do I do? Oh, yeah. yeah I know. You never want to be. I know. I always figure if they don't speak to us best. You know, I, in the beginning, yeah, I was no news is good news, right? Me. Yeah, if they're all ignoring me, I thought I kept thinking, why are they all ignoring? Me? And then I, I began to dawn on me that if they're ignoring me, they're delighted with you. You're you're no trouble. You're doing yeah. no that's the way it's to be. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. I know. <laughs> it's awesome. 
And then you go on to do another vampire incredible film and interview with the vampire. Oh, yes. That that one was, um, I love that one, actually. You know, uh, working with Neil Jordan, another fellow Irishman who lives literally up the road from my family. Uh, that was, mm-hmm. I love that. It was, you know, we went to Paris, we were in New Orleans. There was something awfully nice about that one. We worked with some lovely English crew people and uh, worked at uh, Shepperton Studios. And we stayed in London for a long, long time. And it was, I really liked it. It was a great shoot. And on a creative level, it was very exciting because we had many, Mm. you know, we had 16th century looks and then we had modern, we had, well, say modern Victorian looks it was just a makeup of subtleties, you know. Again, there were vampires, but very different to the Dracula vampire look. And mm-hmm. again, it, this was more a makeup of no looks. But again, it was a makeup of details. And there was a lot of makeup and hair. But again, it was not to be noticed, you know. So it was skin had to be translucent. You know, that's how we got into the veining that you could see. It was so translucent, you could see into it. You know, you could see into the veins, you know, into the layer of veins even, you know. And um, Yeah. I mean, I remember watching it as a teenager. I was, as a teenager, I was captivated by it. I was just like, because they, they looked so beautiful well, at the yes. same time. Yeah, they were meant to be. I mean, the Anne Rice vampire, I don't know, I was besotted by those books and I really wanted, that was a film I went after, I really wanted to do it. And I mm-hmm. actually sent an email, or I think I wrote to the Indian Jordan, was there emails at that time? Can't even remember. But anyway, I contacted his office and made it clear I wanted to, would like to work on it. And he said, well, look, you are nominated for an Oscar for Dracula. And he was nominated for The Crying Game. And he says, look, I'll meet you at the Oscars. That's all he said. So I thought, okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll meet you at the Oscars. So it did happen. We meet, We met there. And I began telling him how much I'd read the books. And I just loved the the whole thing about Lestat and the Anne Rice stories. And he said, she, she got the film. When you work with Tom, you know, kind of thing. You know, he said, when you, when you work with Tom, mm. he's the real Irish accent. I said, well, if Tom would let me, I will, of course. And then that, that film then, of course, started a long, lengthy kind of callback where Tom would call me for films he was doing. And if I was available, I would do oh, that's them. Awesome. And that went on over a span of 16 years. Yeah. And then, of course, Anne Rice was disgusted with that Tom Cruise was hired as vampire as in her Lestat. And she put out these big full page ads and variety and Hollywood reporters saying that she felt Tom was the wrong person. He was not her Lestat. And so that made Tom and I and all of us more adamant that he was going to look the most amazing Lestat ever. And I did everything possible to make him look really appealing. You know, his blonde hair, the contact lenses, the skin, his hands, the delicacy of everything. And when she saw the film, I remember she was invited to the premiere and she saw the film. The next few days, out were coming these gushing, you know, man or whatever ads or treaties from Anne Rice saying, I have found my Lestat. Tom could have been no better. It was amazing. He was truly amazing. So having gone from Tom is not my Lestat, she had found her Lestat. But it was lovely. It was a great vindication. And, uh, you know, it was wonderful to get that, you know, because I just thought, well, if someone says something like that, you really, truly did nail the character, you know. So 
That yeah. was really great. I mean, I I don't remember. I, it was the first time kind of seeing him in something like that too, right? I mean, yeah, I don't think true. I had remembered seeing him in a transformation like that. No, that's right. He, he before the then, on the stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, so that was very cool. That's yeah. awesome being able to do that's that. That's why he wasn't hurt. Then he was. <laughs> yeah, it's like give him a chance. Just wait. <laughs> I know. Well, sometimes you let, if you let an actor stretch, they become they can become because they're an actor. You know, they can do it. You know. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and he must have had a lot of fun with that character, I would imagine. He did. Yeah. I mean, he he works very hard at everything. He he puts a lot into every character that he works with. He he works hard. You know, he gets very serious about it. And then yeah, I do career. everything possible to make it happen for him. You know. So that's very cool. Mm. Now I have to mention the cell because. I remember seeing that film and being like visually just amazed by it. <laughs> oh yeah. And then was... yeah, and then stumbling upon um that director's like the next film that he did was Fall and that is one of my favorite. Oh yes, Tarsim just he's great. Yeah, just he's, yeah. oh, the visuals are just so amazing. Yeah. Well, Tar Sim is a very visual director, and he was the first director really that I've worked with where, and usually I go further than the director asks me. If they say, do this effect, I'll go a little more. I'll just tweak it just a little more, you know, where they may say, Michelle, turn the heat down, you know. Mm. But he was the complete opposite. He would go, Michelle, I want more. I'd show him something, and to me, this was over the top already. And he'd say, no, no, more. And that was really, it was like, okay. You know, roll up your sleeves here. <laughs> and I, I was working with Eiko Ishioka again. Yeah. And of course, she loves Tarsim. And we formed a great team. And, you know, a lot, we'd, this was a quite a low budget film. And I had KMB working with me as the lab. At this point in my career, I wasn't doing lab work, even though I spent my beginning part of my career doing lab work. I had mostly, because mm. it was just too hard to be on the set. And it was just too much. All of a sudden, it was just too, all of a sudden, too much. KMB did the lab work. And I would go over there and, you know, goes through the designs and we look at stuff and re-sculpt or whatever it took. I was hands-on, but not the same way, not mixing cement and making molds. But, and I think it was the beginning of silicone. We did a lot of foam gelatin at the time too, but it was a lot of work and especially to get them hanging from the skin like that, you know. Um, oh, yeah. All the things. I mean, yeah, oh, yes, that's right. Those hooks on the that's skin. That's crazy. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because when he, I remember he did a scene in the bath and he had those hooks on his back. And of course, they warmed up the water because he was getting too cold. And the next thing, it melted the gelatin and the hooks just went clunk, clunk to the bottom of the bath. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, and we were like, oh my God, I'm going to need to get more and put them on. And, you know, oh, the things we it's did. It's incredible to, for you to say that it was a quite a low budget film. Because, oh, yeah. I mean, when you look at it, it really does not look it. And we watched the cell maybe about six months ago again. Did you? Yeah. And it holds up. Like it's, yeah, it's I mean, beautiful. So, you know, that yeah. scene where she goes into the dream world and there's all these weird mm. dolls and mechanical kind of like S&M, like a nurse and a doll and just crazy dream yeah. corridor that she goes down. They decided that on the morning of basically that he wanted what? that and I had nothing prepared really and so all of the stuff you wow. see there is just made out of latex and uh, Kleenex and airbrushing color I mean it was literally like that it was just literally slip latex 
Kleenex, cotton, color, stuff like that. It was, you know, wow. whatever it took, but whatever was in the trailer, you know, it was like, I'm starving. I want a meal. What's in the fridge? And it was that type of thing. So, you know, <laughs> but I love that. That's you see, awesome. you see I, I, I get off on that type of thing. I just love it. Whereas sometimes I notice there's always one or two people on the crew that look at me and go, Shell, how are we going to do that? You know, we can't do that. They're crazy. You know, and I begin to look, we have this and this and this we can, you know. So yeah. it's, it's, it's Are you going to turn around and say, no, it's not possible? <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Oh, well, I, you have to be realistic, too, because you don't want to say you can deliver something and can't because then yeah. uh, that could be the chopping block also. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I mean, these stories that you're, that you're telling me, just the amount of work that is done and the quality of the work and everything, you must have had some pretty amazing people working in your teams. Oh, yeah. So when you're putting a team together, what, what are you looking for? Well, I, I, of course, I, I go for artistic ability and, of course, mm-hmm. the needs of the film. You know, that's why some people would get miffed at me because I worked. they worked with my last film and now I'm not hiring them back. Right. And even though I love them and we've been out for tea and walks, mm. I, I don't have their use for their expertise on this one. I usually go for the expertise, but also very, very important is are they a team player and is their personality uh, compatible and also are they not uh, you know you don't want someone that's going to try to be the boss so if they're a boss they should yeah. take their own shows there can be mm. only one head and if it's me the designated person then it's me and if they're the head i will bow to them but i think it's very important that they do respect that because it can create dissension in the troops so to speak if you've got someone behind your back saying other stuff to them it's not going to work so i do and i do like to have a team that are creative enough to take initiative. You know, I like to Mm -hmm. give a lot of free reign on a creative level to my crew and tell them how I want stuff. But then I'll say, look, you push it more and come back and tell me what you think. And, you know, and sometimes they'll bring great stuff to the table. I never like to curtail Mm -hmm. anybody on a creative level. And I think you can get a lot of thing, a lot out of your crew and out of what they do. If you can push them also, you know, because they like to be mm. pushed, you know, to be told, do more, you know, let let loose, be creative, you know. Yeah. yeah. And uh, if I notice it's going too far, then I can rein in a little bit. But uh, and on the other thing, too, is I like us to have fun. I want, mm. while we're doing the makeups, to have fun and to be enjoying it and not to, to be a stiff, you can cut the air atmosphere, you know, that everyone's polite to everybody and that everybody has a good side manner with the actors and that everyone pulls their weight. Very important. I think that's, yeah, absolutely. And I think you've been, you know, the people who get to work in your teams have been lucky enough to work on such creative projects as well. So that's, I mean, it keeps it fun and interesting just with that in mind. Oh, yes. Which is very cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think they they like it. Well, if you're enjoying what you're doing and having fun, then, yeah, it's not so much work, is it? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So, Michelle, looking back on your career so far, what, comes to mind as being the biggest challenge you've faced like whether it's one specific makeup or an entire job or just part of the job as a whole there's many challenges but I think you know for us makeup and hair people we we do work in a way on our own we're all seeking work and we're all out there on our own in a way and so Mm. the challenge is 
you know, how do you keep that going, you know, to the momentum? It's a challenge, you know, uh, to, it's a bit of a rat race, you know, and that sometimes I would find that difficult. You'd want to just relax and just calm down and take a break. And I never felt I could, you know, so there was always that strange, I'll never get another job if I stop, you know. Um, yeah. What is that? I because don't, I don't, <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I feel like I feel like the further along in your career you get, you hopefully most people kind of have that moment of realization of oh I don't have to say yes to every amazing thing that comes my way. I need to have a break. I know. I never felt I also I can afford to have a break. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but th- yeah, then there's that, yeah, like, oh, then you see the film come out and you're I like, know. oh, I wish and then I you're, worked on it. I know, then you're yeah. regret, yeah, then there's the regret, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, so it is really hard, but I do, like, I just, even stylists who do a lot of day playing and things and just, they're just constant. Yeah. They just go and go and go yeah. and go. And it's, it's just like, race. it's not like, yeah, it's not going anywhere I like know. I think it's a there's enough it's just but I think really what people should realize is that you will get work and you yeah. should calm down and uh, you know because mm. sometimes when people say oh you've done so many films I always feel like saying well I'm I'm tired even thinking about how many I've done because mm. they were exhausting they were just exhausting yeah. you know mm. um I think it's very important to take a break between films yeah I didn't always do that. You know, I always felt that the, what would you go with the monkey on my back a bit? Maybe it just goes back to the old days where there were just, you never knew because you work freelance. Yeah. There was never a security. You always felt you had to take something because there might be nothing then, you know? Yeah. So it's complex, yeah. very, very complex. Exactly. Yeah. It is interesting. I think it takes time to, to retrain the mind to, it's okay to say no. It it's is. It's okay yeah. to take some time out and have some family yeah. time and, as I got older, somewhat I, of a normal yeah. life <laughs> as I got older I would because you would know what type of film it's going to be mm. if you read the script you know and suddenly you're like do I really want to do that what you know it's all night yeah. and they're all covered in muck mm. do I really want to do that yeah. and where did you say it's Slovakia <laughs> uh no thanks you know so at, at a given point you realized mm, not for me thank you you know but yeah. some other ones you can't resist. It's this actor, that actor. This is the subject matter. And you're like, oh, if I don't do it, that person will do it. So therefore I should do it, you know, yeah. and all this stuff. So yeah. um, we get crazy, all of us. We have to calm down. It's true. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> but it's such a, it's such a like mix of emotion and feeling and stuff oh, because it's just like those mm. those jobs that get you so excited exactly. are normally the ones that you know like oh this is going to almost break me like this is going to be exactly. hard oh. but it's going to be amazing but it's exactly. going to be so difficult exactly. but it's going to yeah I'm going to love it it's just like oh god I, now films, <laughs> I know I know films go all over the world it's not like okay we're just confined to Hollywood or Montreal or somewhere you know mm. it, it, they'll look anywhere in the world for someone to do a film so you know the it, the whole competitive thing has opened up wide and if mm-hmm. you don't want to do it then there's you know mary blogs or joe whatever McGinty, whatever there's always someone yeah. out there and they will do it so um it really depends on is it a subject matter or a film that you feel will further your career a lot of the times I would look at it like that because it was the way I th- I was thinking at the time you know creatively does mm. it advance me on an artistic level or 
Is it a challenge for me with me? Because in the end, I was challenging myself, you know, this is something I'd like to do because I have never done it before. And so yeah. to me, that was exciting. I like doing things that I, I like challenging myself. Can I do this? And then I'll invent some great way of doing something, you know? Yeah. Cause you don't have enough challenges already, Michelle. You oh, like I to know. challenge yourself as Honestly, well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. Honestly, goodness, shoot me now. <laughs> It's brilliant. So in our line of work, what do you love most about what you do? Well, for me, I, I think, well, obviously creating the character, the challenge of making mm-hmm. a character look real, that, that's the exciting part, the painting of it, the colors, yeah. really making the actor become that person. That's just yeah. so exciting. You know, I love mm-hmm. that. That is the challenge. I love it. Yeah. 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 The most exciting moment for me is you do all this prep work and work all these things out and do all these little bits and pieces within your own world and your own department. And you're, you know, working with other departments. But then once it comes to shooting that character for the first time in their surroundings, you know, with yeah. the set design, like this and that and the costume and the backgrounds in there and everything, and you're like, Oh my God. I know. It looks amazing. Yeah. It's so exciting. Yeah. I mean, I usually try to do baby steps and I try to make sure that, you know, I will check with the wardrobe and we'll make sure the hair, yeah. everything way before we do the test. So when we come to the test, I can feel pretty confident that I know what they're going to get on film. I never like to go to a test mm. going, Ooh, I wonder how this will come out in the film. You know, I, yeah. You know what I mean? I, I do enough groundwork with all departments to make sure that I'm on the money with what I'm doing. Yeah. And even with the actors so that when they come out of the trailer, they are that character and they feel confident in what I'm doing with them. Because if they lose confidence in me, then it, you've lost yeah. it. You know, it's no good. They've got to be happy with you and feel secure in what you're doing for them so that they can relax and be that person, you know? Yeah, they can get on with what they what they're what their mission is that day. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, it's just so nice to see it all finally come together when oh, you yeah. start shooting. It's the exciting um, moment, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's what we look for, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So going back to talking about locations and shooting around the world and all that type of stuff, what what was the favorite location that you worked in? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think N- Namibia on the cell was. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Kenya and Paris. Oh my goodness, Paris was amazing. They were my favorites. What was the most challenging? Um, they all were, you know. I think, well, actually, the, the one that was most challenging was when we were on Iceman. I worked on that with Michael Westmore, and we were so far north that we stayed literally in tents at the edge of an iceberg, oh, wow. you know, with right. polar bears roaming around at night and stuff. Yep. That was the most. That'll be it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was it. And it was, that was truly quite unique. I mean, it was amazing. Oh, yeah. Staying intense, you know. Yeah. Incredible, but challenging. I mean, yes. and what was the, how, what was the temperature? I mean, freezing. Oh, freeze, freezing, freezing. So how are you dealing with your, with your makeup and everything? The makeup was fine because it's, you know, when it's that cold, everything stays on. It's like getting it off is the problem, you know. <laughs> You know. But just it didn't, you didn't have too much problems with the actual makeup in its packages itself, like getting it to. I don't move remember and having problems because okay. he, was, he was meant to look like he'd icicles on, himself, on his beard and everything. Right. I do remember right. Namibia being 
complex because they'd have sta- sandstorms and you'd come back to your tent and everything be covered in a layer of sand, you know, and everything oh, was gritty. It was like you couldn't get rid of the sand. Mm. That was awful, you know. Yeah, yeah. That was just a different thing. And then uh, if you wanted to shower, you got kind of a bag of water hanging where you put it with a rope and you're hoping to goodness the water's going to land on the right spot on you because otherwise you just didn't even have a shower, you know. So it was complex. But uh, <laughs> I kind of used wow. to enjoy these things. For some reason, I thought this was terribly exciting. You know, either the, 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 the you know, the, 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 what would you call it, like the jungle sound roaring of hyenas and weird lions and growlings and you'd be there naked in this little shower booth with your bucket of water and you're meant to pull the rope once you're soaked up and you're meant to then you know get all the soap off and hope that you're clean enough for the next day you know very exciting that was really exciting (laughs) I think yeah for for certain people very exciting and of a certain age as well I think you kind of get to a point where you're like yeah I know I don't know about that yeah exactly (laughs) when you get older you go "Mm, sand in my clothes sand everywhere gritty bed oh thanks I don't mind. I don't mind roughing it. I, I kind of grew up, uh, you know, having to rough it at boarding schools and at home with six mm. brothers and things. You know, you you learn. Yeah. You'd be surprised. That's awesome. So what do you feel makes you stand out in your profession? I don't know. Gosh, I don't know. Someone else could probably tell you that. Kind of, a lot of times I think I'm invisible, nearly. But standing out, I don't know. I've, I mean, I've always kind of been a bit of a loner and taken my projects and, and just carried on. I don't know. I mean, I think, if anything, just that I did take challenging projects. And, you know, some of the characters now are really uh, unique, which is nice. Unique, I would say iconic. And I always, as I said, would come from the sort of Zen point of view where Mm. I would try to start with less and build up and really try and have the character look organic, so to speak. Yeah. So that no one looks at it and goes, that's a great makeup or that's, you know, whatever. But for them to look like it's them coming out of them, their skin, their everything, you know. And I mean, you and I probably have started, well, certainly me, worked in the era of first time seeing a Polaroid and a fax machine and there certainly were no correcting. So whatever you saw on screen was what you saw, you know, what you shot. Mm. You know, there was no correcting yeah. once you finished your makeup. So everything had to be meticulous. Mm. So you learned how to do makeups literally as if it's under a magnifying glass at all times because you never know how tight they're going to go in and then be yeah. horrified at the dailies that an edge is showing or that something is not right. So you learn to work macro, you know, and with fine detail and really fine brushwork. And I think that's very key to good makeups, you know, is that you're really got a keen eye and that you make sure that there's no sharp lines and things are blurred and that, you know, but like um, Leonardo da Vinci worked, you know, the kind of smato, uh, blend, really blended look. And again, mm. uh, no makeup if necessary, but only details if possible, you know. So um, yeah. that, I think, if anything, is what I think would be more my signature look, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Now, going from just talking about starting with fax machines and Polaroids and then to where we are today, <laughs> what are some of the more noticeable changes that you've seen throughout the years, like in our industry? 
Well, I think, I mean, the biggest one is HD because uh, you really mm. can't, you can't just do the Joe Blasco makeups anymore where you slap on tons of cream and grease and cover. You cannot mm. do that. You just cannot cover, so to speak, in inverted commas. So you've got to find other ways around things. So uh, yes. the skin, number one, has to be truly, truly kept impeccably, which is your canvas. And then whatever you put on it has to be so stealthily put on and so incredibly worked so that really you have to know that once you magnify it, that it's going to hold up, you know, and the only way then is to work with little magnifying glass or something, you know, like those glasses you put on that has a magnified things that every once in a Mm -hmm. while you check what you're doing through it because that's how it's going to look. And again, if you're on the set, have a monocle, a binocular, you know, with a great Zeiss lens, so that you can go right mm. in and see stuff because only then will you notice differences, you know, is the neck and ears, wow. are they done? Uh, the hands, mm. when they put them up to the face, do you see any difference? All It's, it's about mm. details again. And it's about all the little things that make something look real. And if you don't pay attention to those, then you haven't achieved the look, basically. Yeah, I mean, a huge change. I, I, <laughs> my, my grumble that I always tend to have on set is because of the HD, they tend to pump in more Atmos smoke. Yes. And I'm like, why don't you guys just stop using HD? Guys, why don't you? <laughs> I know. If we're having a problem with everything being too crystal clear, can we, let's work yeah, something else out. The, I don't is... know what the love affair with it is. I really don't, you know. Yeah. What happened to the good old fashioned thing? Yeah, I can understand it for like nature shows and yes. <laughs> things yeah, like that where exactly. you want to see everything crystal clear, but I'm like, I don't want to see every pore on somebody's face. I just like. I know. Yeah. Who wants to see the blackheads? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to see, I don't want to sit in Atmos smoke all day either. Just because, oh, no. yeah. Well, that's so bad using... for your lungs. I mean, I, that is so bad for you. Yeah. So maybe we'll go through. Who knows what you know in the next however many years will happen with cameras and what changes they may go. Yeah. Backwards. Oh, I, th- I think we're only just at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. I think we're at the beginning. Yeah. So oh, I think they'll develop more stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I look forward to seeing what happens. <laughs> exactly. So coming up throughout your years, like, but maybe more in the beginning. Was there one piece of advice that someone gave you at some point that has really kind of stuck with you and sung true? Of course, there's lots of advice. Um, well, one thing that did sing through with me was when we were on Dracula. Mm. I remember we shot many scenes with Keanu Reeves mm. after he'd seen The Brides. Apparently, he got it, he was so shocked and it was so traumatizing that he, when he went to Transylvania and saw them, he he his heroin shocked Grey, which apparently happens. And this was a story point. So we had made him a a gray wig and Francis had Mm -hmm. approved it. Aiko had approved it. Everyone liked it. And we shot quite a few scenes with him with this wig on. And then one day Francis comes and says, I don't like the wig. I want you just to put gray hair in just that's it. And we I, we went into kind of like a, a kind of put Francis, you know, right away. Um, we've already shot so many scenes. What do we do about the continuity? And he looked at me and he says, oh, continuity is for wussies. Always correct. Always improve. They're not going to remember that. And he said to me, they are absolutely not going to remember that. And it's true because I remember going to a screening of Dracula at the Academy once. They were doing some retrospective. Mm. And so I had to sit through the whole thing again, which is hard for me because you remember literally what you had at craft service that day. Yeah. (laughs) 
you know what I mean? It's, it's a different thing. And you remember what conflicts or what good things happened. But uh, yeah. I remember watching and he was right. It was seamless going from the wig to just gray painted into the hair. And mm-hmm. I thought he's so right. I mean, as long as it's not such a continuity clanger, you know, but always improve. And I do remember that, that if I was doing a special makeup and it was a very complicated prosthetic makeup and the first day of shooting, there was a few things I could correct. And but maybe we should stay because they're kind of they could be noticeable the next day. I'll mm. boldly correct them without any worries, yeah. you know, and quite often I'll yeah. get these sideways looks from my assistants going, are you going too far with this correction kind of thing? What am I going to do for wussies, you know? And sure enough, when you see the film and it's all cut together, no one notices, but they will notice a mistake. <laughs> if you carry a mistake through, it'll be noticed, mm. you know? So right. very important. Yeah. That's awesome lesson learned. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, always improve. You're always learning. Yes. Always learning and improving. And I mean, the minute you think you know it all is you're oh, kind of doomed, don't you? That's, yeah, cur- <laughs> curtains, end of show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pack up. See yes, ya. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you never stop learning. Yeah. There's no point in time where you say, I know everything, because it's an, yeah. an evolving technology. I mean, the makeup products, everything's moving, changing all the time. There's always a new product. There's always new techniques, always something, new flavors, everything. Now, this is a question I like to ask everybody. If I have you in your trailer, you're all set up, you've got all your tools and products and everything that you love, and I was to take away one tool or product from you, what would it be that would freak you out? Um, What would you not want to work without? Gosh, of course, I'm the queen of improvisation, so... You probably could yeah. take a few things away from me. Um, I think that's a. I think it's a. It's a good quality to have. To be like you could. You could take it all. I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. What could you take away that would drive me crazy? I think if I were doing a special makeup, I wouldn't want someone to take away my ninety-nine percent alcohol. Right. If it was a beauty makeup, I think certain foundations and concealers would not be a great thing. Even though I'm not heavy yeah. on them, I do rely on them. You know, because you you never know what you're going to get if someone comes in with some skin issue. Possibly those two things. Yeah, that's a good answer. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody said the 99% alcohol before, and I think that's a really good point. (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, we rely on it quite heavily. So Yeah, if you're working with some of the inks, you do need it, you Mm. know, to dilute them and to make them better, especially for, you know, special makeups with prosthetics and silicones and things. Absolutely, you'd be lost without it. Yeah, I guess, too, some of the fine brushes you use, you know, those tiny, tiny brushes. They're very important. Yeah, the ones that have, um, I mean, you beat up over time and they just get better the more you use yes, them. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I have a few of those. But... And you get a new one and you're like, no, 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 it's not the same. I know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and who would you like to hear on the podcast? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I've always loved uh, Rick Baker and people like that, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, some of those guys were just always had great stuff going on. Or, I mean, have you had... Um, Kate Bisco on? No, I have reached out to Kate and she is very busy right now. So I'm going to circle back around. So I think I also agree. I think she'd be a great person to speak to. I know. She'd be good. I'll tell you another one that's good is Tom Flouts. Okay. Very un- unsung hero, but Tom is truly pretty amazing. Yeah, he he is an artist. He He's, he's pretty awesome. I only worked with Tom just, I don't know, like maybe – a week or so yeah. doing some night 
shoots on Captain Marvel, and yeah. he's also such a delight. I really, Lovely, yeah. we just had so much fun. And then when I looked into some of his work, I was just like, oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I hired him to work with me on There We Dragons, and he was mm -hmm. amazing. He just kept right up. We just, you know, because we designed a one-piece old age on this actor. He had to look, he, he went from like 25 to, he had to look 80, basically. And we designed this whole wow. one-piece silicone that went on his face. And it was wow. really tricky application because we were struck for mm -hmm. time. And he was wonderful. I mean, we just worked in tandem and he was like incredible. That's awesome. Well, Michelle, I appreciate your time today and I've loved hearing your story. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Not at all. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And I mean, you know, your work and everything that you do is truly amazing. And I think these podcasts are fabulous. I mean, you've had the who's who of makeup on. So it's an honor to be there with them. So I thank you so much for reaching out and contacting me, Jamie. And it's been a sheer pleasure. And I love chatting with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. For links to see more about our guests, go to our Instagram at The Last Looks Podcast or our website, thelastlookspodcast.com. If you want to keep up with new episodes being released, be sure to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, or any podcast streaming platform. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, share it. The Last Looks Podcast would like to thank Brett Stanley and Sabrina Castro. The song Fun Time by DJ Quads. Thanks for listening. Until next time. That's a wrap, people.